For decades, his works of horror, suspense, science fiction, and fantasy have terrified and delighted audiences around the world. The exceptional Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. Stephen King. Stephen King. Mr. Stephen King. We begin with Stephen King. Stephen King. The first emotion in both humor and horror is this sort of childish delight. Hi, Georgie. I remember one thing. Fiction is a lie, but good fiction is the truth inside the lie. Renaissance men and women are few and far between these days, but my guest Benjamin Radford is about as close as they come. As a writer, investigator, and skeptic, Radford has shed some much-needed rational light on all sorts of paranormal phenomena, including psychics, ghosts, exorcisms, so-called miracles, stigmata, lake monsters, UFO sightings, crop circles, and Bigfoot. Wait, Bigfoot isn't real? No. Oh, man. That just... Well, when he's not dashing my dreams of one day meeting a Sasquatch, he's podcasting, creating board games, contributing to Snopes.com, and speaking at universities and conferences. See, I wasn't lying about the whole Renaissance man thing. Here's Bigfoot dream crusher, Benjamin Radford. Benjamin Radford, welcome to the Stephen Kingdom. Thanks for talking with me today. Well, I wanted to start with uh, how you got interested in your field. Oh, that's a good question. So, you know, basically, like most teenagers, I was always interested in the unexplained and the mysterious, right? Bigfoot, psychic powers, crop circles, Loch Ness Monster, Bermuda Triangle, whatever. And so I would buy all these books, these used secondhand books, and I would watch TV shows and I'd be like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. And for a few summers there as a teenager, I was really, really just sort of taken by all this. But gradually, as I looked more closely at it, I realized that there was very little actual investigation. Most of what I was reading was sort of just so stories or, you know, it is said that or, you know, some say that or whatever else. I'm like, hold on here. These are fascinating topics, psychics and ghosts and crop circles and weird things. And because of that, I want to know what's the truth behind them. I love ghost stories. I love scary movies. I love all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, my question is, okay, that's all cool, but is it real? Well, it sounds like you're a man of conflict because on one hand, you'd love nothing more than to prove the existence of all this paranormal phenomena, but you find yourself always disproving it. Do you find yourself constantly at war with yourself? Uh, yeah. I mean, as a skeptical investigator, I would love to actually prove these things are true. It'd be awesome. I would love to find Bigfoot. I would love to prove that ghosts exist. I would love to prove that psychics can predict the future. That would be awesome and fascinating. I'd love to be on the cutting edge of it. The problem is that so far in my research and my investigations, it just isn't so. The real key is that I'm not willing to lower the bar of evidence so low that anything is real. The quality of the evidence for most of these things, whether it's psychics or Bigfoot or whatever else, is very low. It's blurry photographs. It is, you know, secondhand stories. It's anecdotes. And that's all well and good. But from a scientific point of view, we need hard evidence. We need something more than that. So your investigations cover a wide swath of topics, everything from ghosts and exorcisms, psychics, cryptozoological phenomena like Bigfoot and lake monsters chupacabras. and chupacabras, extraterrestrials and all sorts of things. What's your process when you start to investigate something that's out of the ordinary? The basic investigation process is the same whether you're investigating a homicide, uh, a case of fraud, or a ghost. You're looking at trying to gather evidence. You're looking at talking to eyewitnesses. And the real difference is that you're trying to bring critical thinking to the process. And a lot of times people will say something like, oh, well, 
the paranormal is sort of beyond science. I don't even know what that means. There's nothing that's beyond science. Science is all around us. There's nothing that's beyond science. Science is a way of understanding the world. It's the way that we know what causes diseases and why the sun appears to rise in the morning. Although, of course, it doesn't, you know. So the way that I approach these mysteries is through investigative skepticism. And so that's just basically saying, show me the evidence for it, whatever the topic is. And I don't go into these topics trying to debunk or disprove because why would I bother? I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And if the answer is that these people have psychic abilities or the answer is there really is a monster in Loch Ness or there really is a Bigfoot, great. That's I, I want to be there. I want to see it and experience it and poke at it and say hi. But if the answer is that these things actually aren't real, then the question is still an interesting one because the question becomes, why are people seeing and experiencing things that aren't there? What mundane things are they interpreting as ghosts or as psychic powers or whatever else? And so it's a fascinating topic either way. And the other approach that I bring to it is folklore. So I'm a member of the American Folklore Society, and I love bringing folklore to these investigations because so often what we read about is infused with folklore, whether people recognize it or not. Urban legends and rumors and stories, it's all around us, and they're often not even recognized. And so when you bring in a folkloric perspective, suddenly things tend to make sense because you see patterns in claims, in eyewitness accounts, in stories. You see the same stories sort of recur in ghost stories and legends. And when you understand it through that prism, oftentimes it's more solvable. When I approach these investigations, my main goal is to solve the mystery, whatever the mystery is. But my secondary goal is to help people. And sometimes those two are at odds, particularly like in cases where somebody believes that they're, they're cursed or they're possessed or their house is haunted. And so I need to negotiate that as an investigator, right? Because I'm trying to get to the bottom of what's going on, because in many cases, people are genuinely frightened. They're scared. They have something going on that they need an explanation for. At the same time, many of these topics are very personal. If you believe that there's a ghost in your house and you think it might be an enemy of yours who, or who's cursed you, or maybe even a loved one who died and passed on, these are beliefs and feelings that, that run deep. And so it's useful to make a distinction between sort of abstract paranormal beliefs like, you know, Bigfoot or, you know, conspiracy theories about whether we landed on the moon. Most people don't care. It's not a big deal. If Bigfoot's out there, that's great. If they're not there, that's fine. If we didn't really land on the moon in 1969, it's not going to ruin anybody's day. But there are some beliefs, particularly things in dealing with ghosts and personal experience and psychics and things like that, where people are personally invested in and they care deeply about what the answer is and they don't want it to be one way or the other. So when I'm investigating certain topics, uh, such as miracles, for example, or psychics in some cases, it can be difficult because I'm dealing with people who sincerely and genuinely believe in these things, right? They're seeing evidence for these miracles, these paranormal things going on around them. And I have to sort of come in and say, okay, maybe there's another explanation for it. Maybe it's really this, or maybe it's really that. And sometimes they don't want to hear that. You know, they're resistant to that. In other cases, I've had people thank me with tears in their eyes because I have been able to explain something that's been haunting them, uh, literally. I've had several cases where I've been able to go into a location and prove to their satisfaction there isn't actually a ghost there. They have no reason to be frightened. There has been several times when people have contacted me terrified because they believe they've been cursed. And they're not joking. They're freaking out. They can't sleep. Their relationships are falling apart. 
And I try and walk them through it. I try to explain, okay, well, it could be a curse, but more likely there's a psychological explanation to it, right? And so I try and sort of guide them to their own conclusions and help them if I can. So, you know, you're talking about people's deeply held beliefs. What is your success rate in changing people's minds on a lot of this stuff? My success rate really often depends on what the topic is, right? So if it's a topic that somebody has a vested interest in, oftentimes they don't want to hear it. I'll give you one quick example would be psychics. Oftentimes the psychics that I encounter are sincere. They genuinely believe that they have these abilities. They're absolutely sure. And they're happy to demonstrate. They're not defensive at all. They're like, yeah, of course I can do this. And when I give alternative explanations, oftentimes they reject that partly because my discrediting or in some cases debunking their claims, they see as a personal attack on them. I don't see it that way. I see it as you've made a claim, you believe that you can predict the future, or you can do this, or you can do that. I'm just testing it. I'm not saying you're stupid or you're crazy. I'm not insulting you. But if you can't do what you think you can do, I can understand how that would hurt your feelings, but I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm trying to figure out whether you can do that or not. So the success rate sort of depends on a couple of things. One is how invested are they in their proposed solution, right? If they're certain that they had some Bigfoot experience, or they're certain that they had some ghostly experience, I can't talk them out of it. I can show them my evidence. I can do my investigation. I can show them the folkloric and psychological reasons why it could be something else. But at the end of the day, it's not my job to prove to them one way or the other. I I can just do my best. And if they accept that, that's great. If not, then I can't. Has there ever been a case that has genuinely stumped you to this day? Are there any cases where maybe you haven't to your own satisfaction, been able to discredit something or debunk it, or are you pretty much 100% success rate on it? Well, you know, I'm often asked, what about the cases you can't explain? And it's a common question. I get that a lot. And it's kind of a tricky thing to answer. And here's why. The cases that I investigate, the ones that I spend weeks, months, and sometimes years on, and sometimes my own time and money, are cases for which there's good evidence. That is, there's something to work with. And so there are times when there's just not enough to solve the mystery. And it's just like a homicide, right? If you have a dead body and the dead body is found somewhere in an urban area, the likelihood of that case being solved is pretty high, right? Because there may be witnesses around, surveillance footage, cameras. It was probably recently put there, right? So you have a time frame. But if that same body is found in some rural area by some hunter six months or nine months or two years later, the likelihood of solving that mystery drops dramatically. It's not because it's inherently mysterious. It's because there's less information to go on. And the same thing happened with my cases. So the cases that I choose to put in my time and effort on are ones that there's something for me to work with. So if someone says to me, hey, Mr. Skeptic Investigator, blah, 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 back in like 1985, my aunt had this disease And she was uh, in front of a TV and there was a preacher on the TV and she held her hands up to the screen and she was cured. Can you explain that? Nope, I can't explain that. I don't know your aunt. This happened many years ago. There's no witnesses. I literally cannot explain that. But my inability to explain that isn't a function of it being inherently paranormal. It's just there's not enough information to go on. So this is a roundabout way of saying that it's a self-selected group of cases that I choose, right? So I'm not going to pick a case that is, you know, has only some third hand 
eyewitness account from years ago where the witness is dead because there's nothing to go on. And like any case, the more information you have to go on, the more likely your chances are. There's certainly some times in which I've been investigating a case and there's some minute part of it that I can't fully explain. The world is a complex place. Right? There aren't always easy answers and complete answers to pretty much anything. And this includes mysteries. So usually the question is, am I explaining it to my satisfaction and to the satisfaction of the other people involved? Certainly there are times when someone will come up to me and say, hey, I read your investigation of this. I read your article, or your book of routes. You know, I think you're wrong. And my answer is, oh, okay. What do you got? I mean, I'm not being facetious. Seriously, what do you have? What did I miss? So if I'm wrong about one of my conclusions or I didn't really solve the case, I'm perfectly happy to have somebody give me better information. So that's always my answer is, okay, well, show me what I got wrong. And usually it's, well, you know, I saw a half hour TV show and it said that you were wrong. I'm like, okay, well, I spent several months or years on this. So maybe you should go through my research instead of just believing what you saw on half hour TV show. So that's always my challenge back is if I got it wrong, then show me what research did you do? What did you do that explains it better than I did? And if you did, that's great. I'll be happy to update and correct my stuff. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds as if you're not really disproving the existence of these things. You are going into specific cases and you are proving that they are, say, not the thing that's claimed, but that they are something else. Because it's a common misconception with what science is, is that you know a lot of people think that science can disprove the existence of something. And that's really kind of impossible because you think you might have solved all your Bigfoot cases, but then here comes another Bigfoot sighting and another one, and you're back to square one with that particular case. There's a common misconception about what I do, which is that I debunk or disprove ghosts or Bigfoot or psychics. And the answer is no, I don't. You can't debunk a universal. You can't disprove a universal. So I have never claimed, nor do I believe, that ghosts cannot be real or the Bigfoot cannot be real or psychics can't be real. What I have done is debunked or disproven or investigated specific claimed cases of those, right? And so in my investigation, there's literally no way that I could debunk all ghosts. I wouldn't even know where to start with that. What I can do is take a specific claimed case, a particular case where there's maybe photographs or eyewitnesses and look at the evidence and say, okay, in this particular case, the most likely explanation for this is not a ghost or it's not likely this or that or the other. So as an investigator, I don't work on generalities. I work on specific cases. You wouldn't ask a homicide detective, have you solved all murders? Like, <laughs> what does that even mean, right? That's not how this works. A scientist or a detective solves specific cases. And the benefit there is that if you've done the research and you've published it in magazines or elsewhere and you've made it available, then other people who come behind you, maybe months or years or decades later, can look at the research and say, okay, well, in this particular case, this is what the researcher did and this is what it turned out to be. And so it's basically the scientific process of sort of building on the data set. Yeah, I did want to touch on that. You know, Stephen King goes to great lengths in the novel Carrie to ground this fantastical notion of telekinesis with all sorts of real interstitials like news articles and textbook excerpts. And I'm just wondering what you think of his approach to that. It was really pretty interesting to me. I had this sort of 
unique and it's sometimes sort of frustrating perspective on it, right? Because I can enjoy a fictional piece. I can enjoy a novel or a horror film and say, wow, that was a great horror film. But at the end of the day, I happen to know something about the folklore of ghosts and ghost investigations and what is actually supposed to happen during these things. And by the same token, with Carrie, it was fascinating to sort of see this novel that was written in, I think, 1974, and sort of see how King sort of weaves in his and popular culture assumptions about psychokinesis. It was one of those things where, in many ways, what we experience, particularly in entertainment, is very personal from our own perspective. And by that, I mean, you know, everybody brings their own worldview to entertainment. You could call it baggage, if you will. I don't necessarily mean that negative way, but we all bring our perspectives to it, right? If you're an atheist, for example, and you watch The Exorcist, you have a different experience than if you're a devout Catholic. And you're like, well, this is fiction, but that actually happens, right? My priest conducted an exorcism, you know, years ago. So there are two worldviews and people sort of see things through their own prisms. There's a famous quote about a book read by a thousand people is a thousand different books. And that's certainly the case with Carrie. So when I was reading Carrie, uh, a couple of things jumped out at me. One was that he sort of does the old standard, like, it doesn't say based on a true story, but it's pretty damn close, right? <laughs> so he's doing this sort of epistolary fiction thing, this sort of meta narrative. It has these different layers to it. And so you have this sort of verisimilitude, right? This sort of putting on of like, well, this is fiction, but, you know, he's referring to Reader's Digest and Science Yearbook and the Dictionary of Psychic Phenomena. It all sounds very compelling, unless, of course, you know <laughs> the story behind it. You're like, well, hold on here. Hold on, Stephen. This is not quite legit. You know, he mentions real life book publishers. He quotes Bob Dylan, one of my favorite musicians. So it's this blend of like fiction, but framed with little sprinklings of, you know, verifiable truth. And then he sort of, you know, brings in this, it's almost like a quasi conspiracy towards the end, because he suggests that scientists are aware of psychic abilities, including uh, psychokinesis or telekinesis, but they don't want to talk about it. There's this sort of like, well, you know, they've buried it, right? And this is actually very common. It's a quasi conspiracy, frankly, this idea that scientists don't want to admit that extraterrestrials have visited us or psychics are real or else. Because, well, they never say, well, I've heard people, well, if scientists just admitted the truth, then their careers would be destroyed. No, that's not how science works. If scientists knew for a fact that ghosts existed or psychic power existed, they'd win a Nobel Prize if they could prove it. This is not something that scientists are afraid of or skeptics are trying to debunk and disprove and make sure that no one knows about it. We want to see the evidence for it. Well, as a skeptic, given the information provided in the novel, would all of this be enough for you to say, all right, case closed, telekinesis is real? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's, um, sure, <laughs> the answer is yes, right? I mean, you could say the same thing about any sort of supernatural novel or story, right? If I was in the room where the exorcist happened or some of the exorcisms happened and Regan is levitating, I'm like, yep. That we, we're, we're good here. I'm, I'm a believer. Sign me up. Right. And so certainly had I been in the gym, in the prom, when everything is going just, you know, sideways and there's pig blood everywhere and people are getting electrocuted, I'd be like, you know, there's something to this. You know, I think they got me on this. But of course, part of the story here, 
is that there is this big gulf between how Hollywood portrays pretty much everything supernatural, paranormal, and how ordinary people experience them. I'll give you one quick example from ghosts, right? So in ghost stories, which of course Stephen King's written several of, ghosts tend to be dramatic and sensational and scary. And, you know, there's things flying across the room and there's blood and there's bees and these undeniably supernatural, scary things. But in the real world, when you talk to ordinary average people who experience ghosts, as I have for many years, they describe something very different, right? Their experiences of ghosts are not these dramatic, scary, sensational things that you see in films. They are mundane things. They are hearing a sound at night as they're going to sleep, missing keys, a scent, a feeling of being watched. They're mundane, ordinary, generally non-threatening things that they, for whatever reason, happen to interpret as ghosts. And the same thing happens in so-called real psychokinesis, right? So in Carrie, we're seeing, you know, undeniably <laughs> amazing, jaw-dropping, scary-ass psychokinesis of you know, epic proportions. In real life, when you talk to even people who are hardcore psychic believers and psi researchers, they will tell you that, of course, the sorts of effects they're finding are very, very small. One example would be researchers who have alleged psychics try and manipulate random number generators, right? So they say, okay, psychic, this machine or this algorithm generates random numbers. See if you can make it generate more odd than even numbers. And they try and do this, and either the results are statistically significant or they're not. But of course, there's a huge difference between someone saying, oh, wow, now that you did that, there were 12% more even numbers than odd ones. And Carrie's killing everybody around you. So these are like two completely different things. As someone who's investigated telekinesis cases before, what do you think of Stephen King's portrayal of TK and Carrie? There's a couple things here. In the novel, Carrie is experiencing things that are sort of changing and things that are forced upon her and that are scary, right? Menstruation and telekinesis. These are things that come unbidden to her. She's unfamiliar with them. Although, of course, in the novel, she has a brief episode when she was much younger. But in both these cases, you have something that is scary and empowering at the same time. You have a person who's going through something unbidden, and they don't really want it, but in the end, they have to accept it. And this is a common theme, right? So, for example, you'll often hear about the reluctant psychics. Oftentimes, when you talk to psychic mediums or people who claim to have these abilities, they will say flat out, I never wanted this power. It was just given to me. I first sensed it when I was a teenager, but I, I didn't want this and I don't want this. You know, I mean, I'm thinking if this were true, like, I would love this, right? I mean, like, oh, no, you, it's like, you don't understand. It's such a burden. To, I'm like, well, if it really bothers you that much, then number one, why do you have your psychic hotline set up and why are you charging people, you know, 85 bucks an hour for your readings? I mean, come on here. You see this theme that appears in Carrie over and over again. In a lot of psychic medium uh, TV shows and movies, it's this sort of, I'm only reluctantly embracing my power to help others. There's this sort of altruistic notion about it. There's a sort of like, well, it's a burden, but I'll use my powers. By the way, I take PayPal or, or check. But let me, let me sort of put this in a broader perspective here, because it, it, there's a really sort of interesting facet to this, which is that the bigger context here is that 
psychic abilities really covers a broad range, right? So there's precognition and knowing the future, there's clairvoyance, there's clairaudience where people claim to be able to hear things that occur in far distances, remote viewing, where people claim to see, like literally see or imagine their minds, something that's going on across the country, around the world, things like that. But psychokinesis is sort of unusual in that it's more demonstrable, right? I mean, either a person can make, you know, a candle fly in the air or they can't. We're not talking about influencing the number of odd outcomes on a random generator. We're talking about ostensibly things that can be videotaped and verifiably seen. And part of the reason that many people believe in psychic abilities is they assume, and this is something that Stephen King plays on in Carrie, that there is some underlying physiological basis for it, right? And so in King's case, in Carrie, we're told that there is a PK gene, right? There's told there's, there's some sort of genetic abnormality or mutation, what have you, that allows her to express this. And by the same token, you hear people talk about how, well, you know, some people have psychic ability because they use more than 10% of their brain, which is not true. Let's just debunk that now. People use virtually all their brains, just not at one time. So in the course of a day or a week, you use pretty much all of your brains. At any given time, if you're watching reality TV, for example, you may be using only a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. But it's not as if there's this huge amount of the brain that lies fallow. That's just not how that works. But because that belief is so common, people say, well, it makes sense, right? Like, why is this person psychic and I'm not? Well, I'm only using 10% or 15% of my brain. And this person has somehow harnessed that untapped 90%, which isn't really true, and sort of you know brings that to it. So that's one thing that King does that's interesting is that he doesn't just say this magically happened. He gives a somewhat plausible to many people physiological basis for it. So you have this triggering the onset of menarche and menstruation, and she's going through changes. And of course, it's an awkward time for everybody, not just Carrie. And it's something that we can all relate to. Everybody had awkward teenage years, not as bad as Carrie, <laughs> thankfully. We, you know, we've all been the underdog. We've, we've all been bullied and picked on. And so we can hone into that. And particularly because you know, we've all been powerless at some point, who hasn't wanted to be able to get back at the bullies? Maybe using psychic abilities or suddenly have you know, a lightsaber appear in your hand and you know, start lopping off limbs or whatever it is, right? So the template that King creates in Carrie is universal, right? Somebody who's picked on, somebody who wants to get back at their tormentors but can't because they're just awkward and they, they don't have the ability. But if they only had some sort of ability in their minds to make up for their lack of charisma and athleticism to get back, somehow that would even the playing field, as it were. The trope of adolescent girls with paranormal powers is pretty common in popular culture. And obviously Stephen King was at the forefront of that with Carrie. Why do you think that's such an attractive trope in popular culture? It's actually pretty common. You see this in new age circles. There's this notion that animals and children are more likely to see ghosts or experience psychic visions. And part of the idea is that they're somehow more open to the world, right? The idea is that, well, after a certain age, you're old and jaded and skeptical, and, you know, those mean old adults, you know, they, they, but if you're, if you're dewy eyed and you see the world through child's eyes, then of course, anything is possible. And there's a sort of darker side to that, which is that if you look, for example, at the Puritans, one of the Puritan beliefs was that women are more likely to be possessed by the devil 
because it was believed that they are less moral. They don't have the fortitude to withstand the demonic attacks that, of course, manly men do. So we need to be sure to protect women from that. And so there was always this notion that telekinesis was centered around teens. And this actually goes back to the beginning of ghost investigation belief. You can look at the origin of ghost experiences, per se, to date back to the mid-1840s and the rise of what's called spiritualism, which is it's not talked about much these days, but at the time it was this huge religion. And spiritualism was created by two teenage girls. It later turned out they hoaxed it, but they pretended to be having ghostly communications through a series of knocks and raps, and they, they unwittingly launched a religion <laughs> of all things. So it really is literally true that the modern idea of what ghosts are and the, this idea of psychical communing with the dead dates back to teenage girls pranking things. There's also examples. There's the Enfield Poltergeist case in 1977. It's a famous case. I won't go into all the details, but basically it's centered around a couple of teenage girls who claimed that they were having nightmares and bad things were happening to them. Oh, and by the way, there was a poltergeist and it was soon investigated and things would fly through the air. Again, sort of mimicking telekinesis. But what was weird was that it would only happen when the girls were around. It's not like everyone's like, oh, well, well, something just flew across the air. It's like, no, when the girl was there, I think it was Janet. I think she was 11 years old. When Janet's in the room, things fly around. Legos are flying. But when she's not there, they're not, right? There was another case in the famous Columbia Poltergeist case in 1984, a girl named Tina Resch. Very similar situation where there was this alleged poltergeist that was centered around a teenage girl. And once again... She claimed to be having visions and hearing things, and things would fly across the room, again, mimicking telekinesis, but it would only happen <laughs> when she was there and when no one was watching her. And there's a famous photograph of her throwing a phone, pretending to be surprised, and the photographer just happened to catch it. She's like, oh, what's going on here? It's like, you threw a phone. We saw you throwing a phone. So anyway, these and other cases, it's very similar to Carrie, right? Well, you have a single teenage girl, and there's mysterious phenomena that are happening only when she's around. And it's not surprising that King might borrow from that tradition. The idea of supernatural phenomena happening and being centered around a teenage girl who may or may not be pranking. I mean, of course, in Carrie, she's not pranking. She clearly does have these abilities. But if we're looking at the so-called real cases, there are several alleged, you know, poltergeist, paranormal activity, telekinesis cases Unfortunately, in the real cases, they were almost certainly hoaxes. So there's that. <laughs> Not as entertaining. <laughs> Not as entertaining, but still makes a fun story. From a folkloric perspective, is there something to children having these experiences because it's a reflection of adults being afraid of children, afraid of generational change? You know, like I'm thinking of the satanic panic of the 80s and the exorcist from the 70s. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when, when you look and carry at the religious aspects of Carrie's mother, she explicitly links sex with sin, which is <laughs> certainly King did not invent that. That's a that goes way back, sex and sin. But we can also look historically, right? Because especially among fundamentalists, they linked sex and sin and power. And this happened during the, the Salem witch trials, for example. This idea that the power came from young females sort of coming into their own through menarche, through menstruation, sort of becoming women, and in some cases trying to assert their power in a patriarchal society. And this is some of the places where, for example, some of the accusations of witchcraft came up. 
is the idea that these young girls, they're beginning to assert their power. And what are they doing? Are they communing with Satan late at night, you know, on full moons and things like that? And so you have this, this association with sex and sin and power all through coming together. And as in the Salem Witch Trials, as with Carrie's mom, oftentimes it was women who accused other women. So you have these parallels here where there's this notion of trying to keep them in their place, right? Sort of try and keep Carrie a prepubescent girl, try and keep these girls from demanding more liberties in the Puritan era, things like that. And so there's always going to be this tension between kids today and sort of kids today, you know, what, people always worry about what kids today are doing, right? And parents who are, in some cases, justifiably concerned about what our kids doing. Are they going through some terrible thing? Is it, are they doing drugs? What's going on there? So that's another theme that may not be apparent at first reading of Carrie. When you think about it, Carrie is a sort of modern retelling of the witch trials. You have the accusers with the other students. You have burning at the stake with the prom literally burning down at the end. Yeah, I mean, and so, you, you know, you can see why King drew on this. He'd be stupid not to. <laughs> it's all there. I mean, it's you can criticize Carrie for not being one of his best. You could say, well, it's kind of a long way to go for basically a revenge story, but it's really well done. I mean, you, you can't deny it. It's very effective. It's creepy as hell. And again, you can see why it's, it's endured uh, this long. So how do you sell skepticism and science to a world that, well, like our world, that's not always welcoming to it? You have a lot of people that believe in conspiracy theories and fantastical ideas. They outright ignore proof when it's looking them right in the face. And your job usually is to debunk people's beliefs in that sort of thing. And how do you spin it as something positive and something that's not just, I don't know, raining on everybody's parade? I mean, I'll be honest, skepticism can be a hard sell, right? Because oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes when you investigate popularly held beliefs, they don't turn out to be true. On the other hand, what's true matters, right? And so this is one of the tensions between the public and sort of investigational skepticism is trying to say, okay, look, you know, I understand that beliefs can be comforting, but if those beliefs are false, they can also be harmful. And it depends a lot on what that belief is, right? So if somebody believes in Bigfoot or somebody believes that we didn't land on the moon, it doesn't matter that much. It's not going to influence their life choices. It's not a big deal. But if a person believes in some unproven alternative medicine, that can literally kill them. And I've dealt with people who've gone through that, who they say, oh, I, you know, modern medicine and Western medicine, you know, it's all this money-making thing. You know, I want to go to some healer to take care of my problem. And, you know, sometimes that works, oftentimes it doesn't. But meanwhile, they put their life on their line. They sacrifice these things. I also see this, for example, in people who believe that they've been cursed or believe that there's a ghost in their house, where these beliefs can really be harmful. I've comforted people who are terrified to be in their own home overnight because they've got it in their heads, sometimes because of TV shows or, or some psychic they consulted, that their house is haunted and there's some evil spirit lurking around them. I've had people who come to me terrified because they believe that the bad things that are happening to them, a health scare or a car accident or something else like that, is the result of some enemy of theirs attacking them magically and you know, going to psychics. And sometimes they'll give them money and say, okay, well, can you help me remove this curse? And psychics will say, yeah, absolutely I can. You know, bring some money and you know, they'll try and do this whole production. And oftentimes these people, they're even worse off than before because they still believe they've been cursed. Meanwhile, they've been ripped off by the psychic. 
So, you know, what I try to do is I try to emphasize the practical side of skepticism and say, look, the approach that I'm endorsing and the one that I try and live by, it's not negative. It's not mean spirited. It's trying to get to the truth. And whatever the topic is, we're surrounded by people all the time who wants to believe things, politicians, advertisers, friends, colleagues, whatever it is, trying to get us to buy into some proposal or some policy or do this or do that. And for all these things, we need to approach the topic using skepticism. And that just means asking for evidence. If you want me to believe what you're telling me, whatever the topic is, I don't care to buy your product, to vote for you, give me a reason. It's pretty simple, really. That's the approach that I take, is trying to emphasize the positive practical sides of skepticism. I feel like reality and the world we live in is beautiful enough when viewed through the lens of science, and we don't need to explain things away with fantastical ideas. What's weird about what I do, and let's be honest, there's lots of weird things about what I do, but one of the weird things is that there's a sort of often unrecognized gap that skeptics fill. And that is sort of trying to, it's almost like consumer advocacy, because on one hand, you have the public who, let's face it, often believes crazy stuff that is, in some cases, harmful to their, their health, you know, coronavirus misinformation, anti-vax stuff, whatever else. And on the other hand, you have working scientists who are often too busy to combat this misinformation. It's not that they don't know any better. It's that they're busy doing research. They're busy trying to improve the world. And so there's this sort of gap that is sometimes filled by journalists, but often not. And I sort of see the skeptical point of view as sort of helping to bridge the two worlds, right? Bridge the worlds between the scientific side of things and the empirical side of things and the public who oftentimes is misled by misinformation and reality TV shows and things like that. And so that's, that's one of the roles that I see. I remember you saying something like that on an episode of your podcast where psychics, conspiracy theorists, they can make all sorts of wild predictions and they're, they're wrong most of the time. I mean, every once in a while they're right, you know, the broken clock right twice a day sort of thing. But because they're making so many bad predictions, so many wrong predictions, that there's nobody to really hold them account to that. Because by the time you try to debunk all of the false claims they're making, they're already off making new ones. That's exactly right. And so, you know, this is one of the problems is that we know from psychology that, you know, people tend to remember the hits and forget the misses, right? So we remember the times when something amazing happened or they predicted something, but they forget the times when they predicted something and it was wrong or any number of other things. There's confirmation bias, there's psychological biases, and it's just the way our, our brains work. It's not pathological. It doesn't mean people are stupid or crazy. It just means that we need a little help and nudging sometimes to find out what's real about the world. And the best way to do that is using science. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on, Benjamin. I could talk to you about this stuff for hours. My dad raised me on Bigfoot and aliens, and I've been to Loch Ness, and I have a similar background to you, just loving all of this stuff. I don't believe in any of it, but I love it nonetheless. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's, it's cool either way. And that's, that's what I tell people. I say, look, I mean, I've spoken at Bigfoot conferences and I say, look, you know, I'm the token skeptic, right? So everybody else, is, they've, they've said their piece. I come on the show in the last 10 minutes and, you know, and I said, look, I'm not the enemy here. Like I'm talking to the, the Bigfoot audience, like, like you, I love Bigfoot. I think it's cool. I think it's awesome. Right. I'm not, I'm not here to be mean. I'm here to help you guys improve your quality of research. And I have the same discussion with ghost hunters. I say, look, you know, I'm a ghost skeptic, but that doesn't mean I haven't done research on it. I've written a book on it. I've done lots of ghost investigations. So 
you know, I don't think that this is something that's too silly or stupid to investigate because I do it. All I'm saying is if you're going to do it, then do it right. Bring good science to it. Bring critical thinking to it. And if your complaint is that scientists and skeptics won't listen to you, well, then up your evidence, dude. Don't blame me because you're bringing up crap evidence. Do better research and the world will follow. And maybe if they all did that, we would have found Bigfoot by now. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Benjamin Radford, thanks for talking with me today on The Stephen Kingdom. And thank you for being a champion for science and skeptical thinking. The world needs more of it. You can find The Stephen Kingdom, both the podcast and the YouTube series, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to help us keep both the podcast and the YouTube series going, consider supporting our Patreon, where you can get all sorts of exclusive content. The Stephen Kingdom is hosted and written by me, David McCracken, and is produced and mixed by Josh Reedford. Original music by Aaron Reedford. Long days and pleasant nights, constant listeners. Thank you.